0: I want to begin this morning as we move into our second week in the book of James with a quote from Trevin Wax, who wrote, and I love this quote, when we say we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we need to remember what happened to the hands and the feet of Jesus. When we say we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we need to remember what happened to those hands and to those feet. That just as Christ faced immense resistance during his life and his ministry. And ultimately, he suffered and died at the hands of his own people and the hands of a very powerful empire. So too, the apostles like James and so many of the early Christians faced immense persecution from both Jews and Gentiles. And, and that persecution that they faced was something Jesus had prepared them for And as his disciples today, he would say to us as well You need to be prepared. We need to be prepared Because to become the hands and feet of jesus. We may too experience suffering and hardship and trials and pains and persecutions Just as christ did and just as so many as of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us also faced when I think about the first words we read in james about considering it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds i don't know how you received that when you read that last week but some of you may be in the midst of suffering right now and and you as you heard those words from scripture and the holy spirit was speaking through them perhaps you said that's exactly what i needed right now i need to remember the strength of the lord I need to remember that trials produce perseverance. They're, they're a part of a, a maturing process that God brings us through as we grow in Christ. Maybe you needed to hear that you can find joy even in the midst of the suffering you're facing now. But for some of us, maybe it's, it's not in the moment, but it's something we're storing up for later. We hope that we'll remember the next time we go through a trial, the next time we face some suffering. That scripture tells us we can consider it pure joy because god is using it for his kingdom and he's using it for our own good And because of that even in the worst of trials we can find our joy For the first christians who received these letters as james sent this letter out and it was distributed From place to place among christians who james said were scattered all over the world They'd been scattered from their homes and they were dispersed out among the nations suffering trials persecution this was not a hypothetical for them this was not theoretical this was not just thinking out into the future this might happen they were in the midst of it in the moment when james was writing consider it joy when you face trials they were facing those trials right then and there and to encourage them as they struggled and to encourage them and remind them that god has purposes and plans that he is using for the good of his kingdom but also for their good he said consider it pure joy because god is at work even in the midst of your suffering and james writes this letter with the authority of an apostle and when we think about the apostles as we know them in the new testament James is a name that comes to mind but several other names come to mind for you I'm sure you might think about Paul you might think about Peter you might think about the other James you might think about John you might think about Thomas and someone once said about the Apostles what Apostles do is they go into new territory and God establishes his kingdom through them in the new place and we see that so often through the Apostles in the New Testament They would go to a place God would begin moving in and through them and churches would begin and peoples not just people But peoples would surrender their lives to Christ and gospel movements would start and they would would spread As the apostles were sent out Through the power of the holy spirit the kingdom of god was with them and amazing things were happening but james is a unique apostle In that essentially he's the apostle who stayed home Everyone else seemed to go out They had a missionary journey or they were scattered Or they were dispersed But James writes from home He writes from Jerusalem And he is the head of the Jerusalem church And he writes with the authority of an apostle from there Now I shared that about the apostles going And James staying in the 830 service and here's what my 10-year-old daughter heard. She actually wrote it down where she was taking notes. She heard James had to stay home while all the other apostles went out and had fun. That's what, <laughs> that's what she heard. Not perfectly accurate, but if that helps her remember, James was the apostle who stayed home, and as the leader of the Jerusalem church, he wrote this letter, and it was sent out to those believers scattered among the nations. James as we said last week was the younger brother of Jesus he was a half brother and James like as far as we can tell all of Jesus brothers did not actually follow Jesus as a disciple during his earthly ministry at least as far as scripture records we don't really see Jesus brothers stepping into kingdom service until after the resurrection and after Jesus had ascended into heaven in fact John chapter 7 records one moment Where Jesus' brothers seemed to try to talk him out of what he was doing Their relationship with him was complicated And the more that the the heat was being turned up on Jesus you can imagine His family was feeling the heat being turned up on them And so in John chapter 7 the the Jesus' brothers are are, are essentially saying Brother I, I said in the early service bro and my kids made fun of me for that Bro brother this is headed to a dangerous place are you really sure that this is the path that we should walk but after Jesus died after Jesus rose from the dead he appeared to James Paul records this in 1 Corinthians 15 and James was given his commission to be an apostle by Jesus he was called out and from that moment forward James was all in And he gave all of his life as a disciple. He became an apostle. And church history records that James, like so many of the apostles, died as a martyr. And not only did he die as a martyr, but he died a very, very violent death, according to history. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. This is the James, writing with that apostolic authority from Jerusalem, who's seeking to encourage his brothers and sisters Who are in the middle of it Who are facing their own persecution Their own suffering Their own trials And James as we said last week Writes in such a practical way That this is what we call New Testament wisdom It's the how to How do we practically live out our faith And put into practice The things that the Lord has commanded us And instructed us And modeled for us We should live one scholar called this section we're talking about today James's opening salvo against wealth because he comes back to this topic several times about how godly wisdom teaches us to treat our stuff how godly wisdom teaches us to to have an attitude towards the things we own and the things we want and the things we desire And essentially, these first three verses wrap up together this teaching that James will continue later on in the letter, that godly wisdom teaches us to hold loosely those things which are soon to pass away. To hold loosely our stuff. To hold loosely our earthly desires and wants and and our wealth and our success and our status. And all the things that 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 why, whether from human nature or from culture, we are so driven to pursue. James says, "Godly wisdom teaches us to hold those things loosely. And verse nine begins with a word of encouragement specifically to those believers who were struggling with poverty. Perhaps they were already poor, or maybe it was because they'd been dispersed, they'd been kicked out of their homes. And and they were now living in a new place, in in a strange place that they no longer had the resources they once had. And he reminds them from the very beginning what is a consistent teaching of Scripture, that God lifts the poor up. And those who are in humble circumstances, when they cry out to him, God hears them, and he is present with them, and he lifts them up. Believers in humble circumstances, verse 9 says, ought to take pride in their high position. I was talking with a group of our teenagers here in our church not long ago, and I'm not going to name any names, but our teenagers, just so you know, anytime I try to speak teenager in a sermon, I get made fun of for it relentlessly, just as my kids made fun of me for saying bro this morning, and I'm fine with it as long as they can handle me making fun of them once in a while okay so I was in a conversation with a group of our teenagers and we were looking at a picture of a church and one of the teenagers said oh man that church is sick that's what the teenager said but he meant it as a compliment okay so have you picked up on this the church being sick was a compliment it's teenagers speak for that church is awesome that church is great that church is amazing That church is sick. That's what he said So so now you you might hear that word in a different way if it comes from a teenager Usually when we call a church sick, it's not a good thing And when we read through the new testament some of the letters That are sent out by the apostles as the holy spirit is writing through them They actually deal with sickness in churches. They deal with some situations where there are clear signs of unhealth There are sick churches and there is sickness in churches still today. It's not a good thing And sometimes we even find scripture dealing with those specific circumstances James never actually tells us Whether or not he's talking about a specific situation We don't know who he's writing about. We don't know exactly what he's writing about This may just be general wisdom that the lord has led him to write but in any case He's reminding his brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, hold those things loosely which are soon to pass away. And listen, in God's economy, the systems and the measures and the rankings that we often use on earth do not apply. We might say it this way, when we all get to heaven someday, the systems that human beings have created that give wealth that give status that give privilege that give some people some things and take them away from others the systems we have the rankings that that elevate some over others they don't apply in the kingdom of God because in God's kingdom all that matters is are we his children all that matters is have have we surrendered our lives to him and when we all get to heaven we will be in his presence together and that is our reward So we ought to read verses 9 and 10 together. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. You know, the the phrase that James uses for those in humble circumstances, we could translate it, those who are small people. And, and the, the idea there is from a standpoint of status From the standpoint of how others look at them or others make them feel If you feel small in this world Take heart and take pride Because the lord is one who lifts up those who are poor and humble And those who remain prideful and put all of their faith and trust in things like wealth Ultimately, they will be the ones who are brought down low this is a consistent theme of scripture in fact i want to roll through several scriptures with you for just a moment just read them that that pick up on this idea that james is continuing this this godly wisdom teaching that god lifts up the poor and humble but he opposes the prideful and the greedy as i read these scriptures i hope that you'll Realize as I realized going through them this week, I really think God wants us to get this message. He says it so often, he repeats this theme so many in so many different places in scripture. I really think he wanted us to hear and to understand. Proverbs three. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. James will quote this later in the letter. Psalm 147:6, the Lord lifts up the humble but he casts the wicked to the ground. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she was praying and singing after learning that that she would give birth to the Messiah, that God had given her this wonderful gift, And he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised, just as he promised our ancestors. Jesus picks up on this same teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And as I mentioned, James quoting Proverbs says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. God wanted us to get this message that he lifts up those who are humble, that he's present with those who are poor, that he is in the midst of our suffering and he walks with us through our trials, but that those who are still wrapped up in pride and they're not holding those, those things that, that will pass away loosely, and they're not living their lives in surrender, and they're not living their lives for the glory of God, but rather for the glory of self, He reminds them of this consistent teaching of scripture that that kind of lifestyle will bring you down with a great crash But those who humble themselves will be exalted They will be lifted up To drive this home At the end of verse 10 into verse 11 James uses an agrarian example Now here he's actually Almost directly quoting from hebrew wisdom This is almost a direct quote from Isaiah 40 and from Psalm 103. But also using agrarian language in the first century in the ancient world, it was speaking the language of the people because everyone understood the agricultural system, the agrarian network. It wasn't like today where you could just go to a grocery store and get what you want or order it on demand and it'll be there the next day or even the same day. Everyone was dependent upon the land. Everyone was dependent upon agriculture. And so, when Jesus or other writers of the New Testament or or apostles like James, when they used this language of agriculture, it spoke the language of the day. The language here is that of a flower, a plant. Since they will pass away, the rich, James says, like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and it withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Still today, when you visit Israel, if you're there in the hottest months of the year, you will feel the effects of the hot desert winds that come in from the east. And and still today, if plants, if vegetation is growing and the roots have not gone down deep, and it's not already strong and producing fruit, that hot desert wind will scorch it, and within minutes that plant will fade, it will die, its flowers will fall, and it will no longer be useful. In the same way as the hot, scorching desert winds hit Israel, James says, those who put their trust in things like wealth and earthly status will pass away. As one author wrote, life is so uncertain man is so vulnerable the externals of life are so perishable calamity and disaster may come at any moment since that is so a man is a fool to put all his trust in things like wealth which he may lose at any moment but he is wise only if he puts his trust in the things which he cannot lose This is godly wisdom It's the kind of wisdom that the spirit used James to teach us and to remind us of But godly wisdom given to us in scripture and in writing is one thing What's perhaps even more valuable than the written wisdom Is the wisdom we see personified in jesus When god came to us in flesh as jesus christ walked on the earth We not only read about wisdom and heard about wisdom, but humanity was able to see perfect, godly wisdom put into practice as Jesus lived a perfect life. He showed us exactly what God requires, what God expects, and how putting it into practice is supposed to look as we walk around in our own flesh and blood. Jesus was perfect, wisdom personified and consider what Paul wrote about Jesus in Philippians 2 that even though Jesus was God in the flesh even though he is the son of God he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited but instead what did Jesus do he humbled himself and he took the form of a servant Jesus became a servant to all And Paul says in Philippians, he became so much a servant to us that he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And he gave us the one thing we could never obtain on our own, forgiveness from sins and salvation through his blood. That's the level to which Jesus Christ, the King of kings, humbled himself. And in the same way, As the scripture teaches and as Jesus modeled, those who humble themselves and hold loosely those things which are soon to pass away will find life and they will be exalted. So in light of all that the Bible teaches on this topic, should we all empty our bank accounts? Should that be our response? As I was thinking about that question this week, I was going to say, no, I don't think that's exactly what The scripture is saying but instead i'll say maybe i don't know i don't know if that should be our our perfect faith response to this at all but rather than talking about our bank accounts maybe a couple of other questions to consider before we move to the last verse these are perhaps more important questions than what's in our bank account when we think about humbling ourselves so that christ may lift us up The first question is, who is being glorified ultimately by my life? Is my life one that is constantly only bringing glory to myself and acquiring things for myself? Or am I living a life, am I seeking to live a life that glorifies God above anyone else and anything else? The first question, who is being glorified by my life? And the second is, am I investing my very best into things that will last? Am I investing my very best into things that will last? Well, what are the things that last? They are the things that lead to the crown of life. And that's where James finishes this section of his letter. That the path of suffering, trials, temptations, persecutions, all the hardships that that his readers were facing the path of suffering and godly wisdom leads to the crown of life that the lord has promised us in christ it's a reminder just as we read last week that even in the midst of suffering and trials and hardships god is heading us somewhere he has a a, a target an aim out in mind and he is leading us forward and as we go forward in faith He has not only the good of his kingdom in mind, but he has our good in mind as well. God is not aimless as he guides and directs us. And as we follow him, as we follow Christ, he's not making it up as he goes, okay? He's not in doubt about where things are headed. He knows exactly where we're going. He knows exactly where we're leading us, and we can trust him. That the path we're on, even in the worst of circumstances, is the path that leads to the crown of life. When we hear that phrase, crown of life, most of the time in our Western mindset, we're tempted to think of, of a crown like a king wears or a queen wears. We saw a coronation just a few months ago, right? And we picture the king's crown. But actually, what what the word that James uses and Paul uses this same word in a couple of places is not the crown of a king or a queen, but it's the victor's laurel crown that is given at the end of running a race and winning the race. The the path that leads to the crown of life is the one where we will be crowned with a victor's crown. And Jesus will say to us, just as Paul wrote, you have run this race and finished well. Here is the crown of life that's promised to those who believe. It is a crown of victory And listen to me because this is so important There is only one way That we can receive the crown of victory And it's through the victory that christ has won for us, right? We can't run this race without him We'll never be able to run this race faster than he did or better than he did Christ has already won the victory He has already finished the race perfectly and become the perfect sacrifice for us So the only way we wear the victor's crown is if we share in his victory and we say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if Jesus Christ is the Lord of our life, then the race we are running is the race that will end with the crown of life. That's what we've been promised. Jesus has promised this to us just as Mary sang. The promises that he has made to his people from the very beginning And in Jesus Christ, as we follow him, as we we put into practice that which he has commanded and instructed us to do and the ways we are to live, the path of suffering and godly wisdom leads us to the crown of life that Jesus has promised. I love the way verse 12 is written as a beatitude. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive The crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. We're blessed, we're blessed in this circumstance because of the promises of God. Because we can endure. Because through Christ's strength we can stand the test and we will receive the crown of life that he has promised. Jesus used that language of beatitude a lot, being blessed or being blessed as we like to say. And sometimes that word blessed will be translated as happy. But I think we all know that being blessed is not always the same thing as being happy. Because sometimes we can acknowledge that we're blessed even when we don't feel happiness. And being blessed also certainly doesn't mean that we always have everything we want. In fact, some of you have probably had the experience that I've had on multiple occasions where you've been around believers you've been around brothers and sisters in christ who live in places where there is terrible poverty they don't experience the privileges we have they don't experience the freedoms we have they are in in a perpetual state of of dealing with hardships and 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 at times with suffering and yet you're around those believers and you say they are filled with an inexpressible joy They do consider it pure joy even when they suffer and they have this incredible faith Even though they struggle and they suffer in so many ways And if you've ever been around people like that brothers and sisters like that, I know I have It's not only inspiring, but it's convicting And you say look at how Much joy this person has even when they're dealing with such difficult circumstances That, I believe, is the kind of blessed that James is talking about. That is how I believe James means we can consider it pure joy even when we suffer. These brothers and sisters receiving this letter, they were in the middle of it, and yet they believed that God was faithful. I love the word that one scholar used for that idea of blessed, the word wholeness. What we experience when we rest, we find our rest in Christ, is a wholeness. And that is a blessed place to be because we realize that in Christ we are all that we could be, not because of us, but because of Him. Therefore, we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, believing and trusting that He will lift us up. And not only will He lift us up, but we will, when we endure, receive the crown of life that he has promised i hope and pray that you believe that today that you have that faith and that you can experience that joy and i want to invite you to bow your heads with me if you would and i'm going to just ask us a, a short series of cre- questions but i want to ask us these questions with a prayerful posture okay I want you to to however you can get into that prayerful posture with your head bowed, eyes closed if you need to, your hands out whatever it looks like to be in that that prayerful posture of receiving from the Lord I want you to consider these questions in, in that way here's the first one what does this godly wisdom this Christ like wisdom look like in your personal life What does it look like to put this into practice in your personal life through your integrity who you are and the things that you do? What does it look like to put this godly christ-like wisdom into practice in your home? What does this look like for you as a spouse or a parent or a grandparent or with those that you love or those that you're around the most? What does this look like in your home? What does it look like to put this kind of godly Christ-like wisdom into practice in your job, in in your workplace? What does it look like to put this godly Christ-like wisdom into practice in your daily activities and the things that you do on a regular basis? What does it look like in how you serve? What does it look like in how you give? When we say we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we need to remember what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus and even better than wisdom literature and wisdom in 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 written word is the wisdom personified in Jesus Christ that we can see so what does it look like to put these things into practice with Christ as your example Jesus modeled for us how to live And he gave his life so that we could be free from sin and live this way. And he also gave us the Holy Spirit so that through the power of the Holy Spirit we might put this godly wisdom into practice. Lord, I pray today for each and every one of us that what we've heard, that what we've understood, that what you've spoken to our hearts, Would be that which becomes a part of our lives Who we are the attitudes and With which we we carry ourselves the ways in which we treat our neighbor Lord, I pray that you would help us To see today what it looks like to surrender even further all of our hearts all of our lives that we would love you As our god with heart soul mind and strength and through that love Love our neighbor as ourselves. And Lord, I pray that our our lives would look like what James wrote about, which echoes the words of Jeremiah. That the wise would not boast of their wisdom. That the strong would not boast of their strength. That the rich would not boast of their riches. But that the one who boasts would boast about this. That we have the understanding to know you, that you are the Lord. You are the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. And in these things you delight, you have declared. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us in that posture of surrender today. To hear your word, to receive it, and to put it into practice. And to walk faithfully, as our God, as we follow Jesus closely through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that for each and every one of us, in Jesus' name, amen.